This is the one whom you ought to seek. Not that which you can see, namely material things, but that who is unseen, the one who saved you, who bought you, who redeemed you, who commissioned you. Seek him with all of your heart. And when you do that, friends, you will be content. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today we come to the final message in our series from the book of 1 Timothy. As with any conclusion to a good letter, the Apostle Paul gives some encouragement and words of closing to his brother in Christ, Timothy. Let's rejoin this message now as Pastor Carl begins looking at some directives Paul gives Timothy and his desire to make him a pastor after God's own heart. Our text is from 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 11. Now let's examine the charge to Timothy. It comes on three levels. First, there's Paul's ethical appeal to Timothy. Notice, but flee from these things. That is the evils of which the love of money is the root of. Shun it all and instead pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. These are the qualities you are to pursue as a man of God. Now, we could spend a whole sermon, I suppose, just on that list. But let me just note that I think you could probably separate them into pairs. First, there's righteousness, which describes the Greek word that he uses, our just dealing with our fellow man. And then he uses the term godliness that expresses our reverence towards God. And so righteousness and godliness describe our duty both to man and to God. Then he mentions faith and love. And they often go together in Scripture because faith is confidence in God and love is seen in our service to man. Then he mentions perseverance and gentleness. And they really go together because the Greek word for perseverance is the endurance of difficult circumstances where the Greek word for the gentleness is the endurance of difficult people. So he says to Timothy, flee these things, you man of God. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Now that's an ethical appeal. But what I find interesting is it's both positive and negatively. Negative. Negative, avoid, negatively, avoid what is evil. Positively, pursue what is good. Or you could paraphrase it, run from that which is evil. Timothy, run towards that which is good. What are you running towards? You know, some of us have a choice opportunity this weekend. And we never even for a moment considered whether we'd come to this men's conference because we play golf every Saturday morning. And we've got our plans and our life and our agenda and our thing. And you wonder sometimes, well, your heart's not really in check and guarded by the Lord. Because we don't with a passion pursue that which is good. Flee the one, follow the other. If you want to avoid anything, then concentrate, Timothy, on avoiding evil. But then pursue certain things. Now, we pursue pleasure, we pursue promotion, we pursue fame, we pursue wealth. But Paul says, if you want something to pursue, then pursue first God's kingdom in his righteousness. Timothy, run from evil and run towards what is good. That's his ethical appeal. But beginning in verse 12, he gives a doctrinal appeal to Timothy. Notice, fight the good fight of faith. 
Now, in this case, to smooth out the English reading, so it's not so wooden, the definite article is not there in some translations. But in the majority of translations, it is. It says, as in the NIV, the RSV, the ESV, the ISV, to name a few, it says, fight the good fight of the faith. And it really should be contained because it's demanded by the context. Much like Paul in 2 Timothy 4, when he comes to the end of his life, he says, I have fought the good fight, I've kept the faith. And since Paul in this epistle has been speaking in terms of the faith, the commandment, the doctrine, the deposit, really the translator should use it here. He's already told us in chapter 1, keep the faith. He's just said in the immediate context in verse 10 of those who wander from the faith. When we come to verse 21, he's going to speak of those who've gone astray from the faith. He's referring to the Christian faith, what Jude said when he said, contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered for all, which was once for all delivered to the saints. That is that body of truth we call Scripture. Now what I find significant here is that when Paul makes either this ethical appeal or this doctrinal appeal, there's both a positive and negative side to each. And so, in the ethical side, Timothy, pursue good, shun evil. On the doctrinal side, Timothy, pursue truth, put away false doctrine. Look at verse 20. He'll echo the same truth. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, that is the faith, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. And so in both his doctrinal and ethical appeals, there is a negative and positive duty. Ethically, avoid the evil, pursue the good. Doctrinally, avoid error, guard the truth. Like Nehemiah, we are to have a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. We are to build and we are to battle. Now it's sad that some Christians spend all of their time fighting the enemy such that they have no time to do the work of the Lord and to build up his church. But if on the other hand... The saints of God do not stand guard and oppose the enemy. What we have built will be taken from us. And so it's not just any fight. He says, fight the good fight. It is a good fight, Timothy. Why? Because the souls of men are at stake. Their eternal destiny is, at, is, is here to consider. And not only are the souls of men at stake, the health of God's church is at stake. So we're not to be soft. We're not to back down. We are to fight the good fight. But notice how paradoxically, paradoxically it's put in this context with the word gentle. We're to be gentle as we fight. The good fight, not in a pugnacious way, but in a gentle way with strength under control. So here's an ethical appeal. Here's a doctrinal appeal. Notice Paul's personal appeal to Timothy. Verse 12, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, Timothy was called by God to salvation. It's called eternal life. And he made a good confession, namely when he was baptized, as every Christian does. First you're saved, then you make the confession that follows by baptism. The order is always plain in Scripture, believe and be baptized. Man reverses it, God is clear. So he was called to salvation and he made a good confession of that salvation. Now when he speaks here of eternal life, he is not speaking at the prize at the end of the race, namely heaven. How do you know that, Pastor? Because he says, take hold of it. He says, I'm talking about something you can have right now. Take hold of it right now, Timothy. 
Nor can we infer that Timothy is not yet saved and he's exhorting him to become a Christian. Why? Because one, he's a pastor. He's writing a letter to him. He's just called him a man of God. And he just said he didn't make a bad confession, but a good confession. Eternal life in the Bible is not simply heaven. That's included in the package. Jesus said, this is eternal life that they might know thee, the only true God in Christ whom thou hast sent. Eternal life is knowing God. And so Paul is saying to Timothy, you want to be content. You want to know when enough is enough. You want to keep balance in this life so that you can really have a right and proper perspective. Then get a grip on eternal life. Seek God above all else. Because you see, it is possible to have received eternal life and not to live it to the full. He's telling him, in essence, as he says to the Philippians, I count all things as loss for their surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I mean, what an appeal. And what an appeal, not just to them, but to us, especially in this day of relativity and these who deny moral absolutes. Paul says to Timothy and to us, there is such a thing as goodness. Pursue it. There is such a thing as truth. Fight for it. And there is such a thing as life. Take hold of it. And in order to make this charge stick, to put it in a proper context, he says in verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. But he doesn't simply appeal to the presence of God and the presence of Christ. He also appeals to the fact that Christ is coming back again. And Timothy, you're going to meet the one who bled for you. You're going to see him face to face. And you're going to give a reckoning to him. That you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality, and dwells in inapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Timothy, this is the one whom you ought to seek. Not that which you can see, namely material things, but that who is unseen, the one who saved you, who bought you, who redeemed you, who commissioned you. Seek him with all of your heart. And when you do that, friend, you will be content. So he gives his instruction to the poor. He gives his instruction to the pastor. Notice now his instruction to the prosperous. He moves now from those rich wannabes to those who desire to be rich to those who are rich. Verse 17 begins, instruct those who are rich in this present world. Now God makes a distinction between the ambition to be rich and the condition of being rich. The desire to be rich is called covetousness in Scripture, where the second state is called wealth, and it's not necessarily condemned. It depends on your attitude towards those things and your use of it. So God makes a distinction in this text really between two kinds of wealth, between those who are rich in this age and those whose riches belong to the age to come. 
You see, it is very possible to be poor in this age and very rich throughout all of eternity, rich in the age to come. It is also very possible to be quite rich in this age and poor in the age to come. But it's also very possible to be rich in this age, but not just rich here, but to be doubly rich, to be rich in the age to come as well. And so as Paul addresses the rich saints in the church, he wants them to be doubly rich. Now don't tune me out, because some of you, when you read this text, you say, you already got somebody in your mind. And you're already thinking about who this applies to, that it doesn't apply to you. Look, may I remind you, the average income in this world is $2,100 a year. We as Americans are poor as poor, are rich compared to 98% of the people in this world. In addition, understand that you're not simply rich by how big your house you have or, you know, if you have 10 cars or a big yacht. Biblically speaking, the rich to whom he is speaking are those who do not simply have the necessities of life but the luxuries of life. That's what he's dealing contextually. You not only have food and covering, you got more than that. And he calls such people in this context rich. Now, when you look at the rest of the world, we are rich in this age. And so Paul's charge to Timothy, and really to us, is that those who are rich, that they should not divest themselves of their riches. He doesn't say to them, go sell it all, get rid of it all, give it all to the poor. Now, he said that to the rich young ruler, because the Lord wanted to reveal to that man that his God was his money. But it may come as a surprise to some of you that you can be a Christian and rich and the two are not mutually exclusive. However, what he wants us to see is that we lay up not treasure on earth, but treasure in heaven, that we are not to be misers or materialists. Christ plainly taught, so therefore, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Christ must come before your possessions. And if you want to be his disciple, I mean a disciple that he can use. There must be a point in your life when you take it all, because it's not yours anyway. You're just the steward. But you acknowledge it and you say, God, I give it all to you. I give it all up. Lord Jesus, everything I own is yours for your disposal to do as you please. I want to tell you, if you don't do that, then you will not own those riches. Those riches will own you. And you will never be happy in this life. I've never seen anyone who has clung to things that have ever been used greatly of God. But understand that God is basically teaching here an inner detachment. He's teaching here an issue of, a, of the heart if we are to be true disciples. Not a state of absolute poverty, but being free from the ownership of those things and acknowledging that as a steward, they belong to Christ. Now, what I want you to see is both the negative and positive instruction that he gives to those who are rich. First, he uh, teaches on the dangers of being rich. There are two great dangers to being wealthy. The first is conceit. The second is materialism. And the more you have, by the way, typically the more these dangers increase. Verse 17, instruct those who are rich in this world not to be conceited. There is no doubt, doubt that wealth is the father of conceit, of vanity, and of pride. On one occasion, I reminded some of our teenagers before they visited the Ukraine 
That the temptation was for them as Americans to think that they were better because they had more than those people. That's conceit. That's pride. Or even in this country, if your home is bigger, if your car is newer or more expensive, if you just have more, the temptation is to become conceited. You may think that there's only a certain class of people with whom you can rub shoulders with and befriend. And so the rich man may be proud of his Cadillac and despise a man who drives a Cavalier or maybe even in some places a bicycle. Or the rich man who lives in a large and sumptuous residence may despise the poor guy who only lives in a rented flat. And of course, the same is true in regards to the way you dress, the food you eat, the vacations you take, the gadgets you possess. You can become proud and conceited and somehow think you're better. So the first great danger of having much is to become proud of what we have and scornful of other people. The second danger is that of, that, is that of becoming materialistic. Notice, Timothy charges the rich of this world not to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. He's speaking here to the Christian rich. Don't fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Materialism is not the mere possession of things. That's wealth. Materialism is the unhealthy obsession with things. It's always wanting more, coveting more. And very often, it's just a very short step from wealth to materialism. And before we're done with these three pastoral epistles... We're going to see that God teaches not just here, but in the other epistles, that our tendency, especially if we have much, is to trust in our riches, to find a sense of security in our riches, to find a sense of status, of significance in who we are and what we have, rather than in God, who ought to be our richest possession. Paul describes us as setting our hope on the Lord God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Now, God is a generous creator. And if he has given you something, he's given it to you to enjoy. You don't need to feel guilty over it. And so, so we stay in balance. Paul deals not just negatively with the dangers. Secondly, Paul deals with the duties of being rich. Look at verse 18. He sums up two duties. Instruct them to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. If you are rich, first you are to be rich in good works, which is very necessary instruction because if you have much, the tendency is to be lazy. Why is that, you say? Because sometimes, and I'm talking here in the context in which it is in the realm of the church, because we are so used to having people serve us, we don't serve others. Now, we've got some rich people in our church who are not afraid to roll up their sleeves and do something for God. But we have rich people who come who sit soaked and sour. They won't get their hands dirty because they're too good. Some people who are conceited I've heard people classify churches as white-collar, blue-collar, as if one is better than the other. Friend, the church is to be a composite of society. It ought to have rich and poor, and it ought to be a family that comes together. 
And so he says, not only are you to be rich in good works, he also says you are to be generous, ready to share. The rich are not only to be rich in enjoying that which God has given them to enjoy, but they are also to be rich in sharing it and dispensing it to the work of God. And so when they do this, he says, they are storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Some of us here this morning, we don't tie the dime and all of us are rich, whether you want to admit it or not. We don't think about giving 10% of our income to the Lord's work. And we never will. And we're just looking for a reason and an excuse not to. And here we are living in a society where we have so incredibly much and we struggle to send missionaries and to do the work of the Lord Jesus Christ across America because God's people have so much in their pockets. And so Paul finishes where he began in verse 3. Oh, Timothy. It's an evocative. It's a plea. Oh, Timothy. Guard what has been entrusted to you. Avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. How do you keep your heart from going astray? How do you lay up the treasure of a good foundation so that you can really take hold of that which is life indeed? Well, I suppose the whole answer is summarized in the last four words. Grace be with you. And the word you is not in the singular because he's not simply addressing Timothy. And the Greek text, it's in the plural because he's addressing the entire church at Ephesus and everyone here. Now it is by grace alone that the poor will be content and that the rich will be humble and generous as they seek the face of God. Have you this morning ever taken hold of that which is life indeed? And if you have, do you share it with others? Pascal, the famous French philosopher, said, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man that cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. And until you take the first step and receive the riches of God's grace administered through the blood of the cross, then I'll tell you, you will be bankrupt for all of eternity, wishing that you had responded in faith. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed this morning. I wonder how many of you are here who could say, Pastor, I know that I know that I know that I've been saved. I am born again. The Spirit bears witness with my spirit that I am a child of God. There is not a doubt in my mind that if the trumpet of God were to sound, that Jesus Christ would come and take me to heaven. Furthermore, I've been baptized as a Christian, and I am a member of a New Testament Bible-believing church, just as the Scripture teaches. If you could say that this morning, would you raise your hand? Thank you. Put them down. Now, some of you could not raise your hand, maybe because you've never been saved or you've been saved and you've never made it public by baptism, or you're not a member of a New Testament church, and you know this morning that there is a decision that you need to make, and God brought you here at this critical juncture in your life to make a decision. I wonder this morning, if you have a decision to make and you want me to pray for you, no one looking, but I'll not embarrass you. you you've got a decision either to receive Christ or to be baptized or to become a member of a New Testament church or some other critical decision. Would you raise your hand so I can see it? All right, somebody else? All right, number of people.
Maybe you raised your hand or you didn't, but you needed to because you're not saved. And I wonder this morning if you would understand that Jesus said that the riches of this world and the lust for more would keep many out of the kingdom of God. Would you understand that the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow may be too late for you. Your heart will be too hard and you'll never respond again. There's never a better time to receive Christ as Lord than right now. And if you understand that you're a sinner, that you're bankrupt in the sight of a holy God, if you understand that you're helpless, that you can do nothing to contribute for the, with good for the evil you've done, that you can do nothing to make up for your sin, that only the blood of Jesus Christ, His substitutionary death on the cross, can pay for your sin. And you want to be saved, would you today say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. Tell Him, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I'm not good enough to get into heaven. Thank you for becoming a man, for dying on the cross for me, for taking my wrath. As the risen Lord, I trust you now to save me. Thank you for the free gift of eternal life. Thank you for forgiving me of all my sins. Lord Jesus, make me to be whatever you want me to be. And Lord Jesus, because you've saved me as your word commands, I will make it public. In obedience to the word of God, I will be baptized and be a part of your church. Now, Father, I know that there are decisions that need to be made today and people may need grace to make them. Give them the courage. Those who need to come publicly to do so. And those of us who may not need to walk this aisle this morning, but we've been confronted with truth. And some of us have some serious critical decisions to make in our life. That we buy into the spirit of God and his word and not the spirit of the world and its falsehood. Help us not to be those who just hear the word, but help us to be those who will obey it with all of our hearts. And we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. To listen again to today's study on contentment and how not to miss it, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling us at 877-787-7478 and requesting program number 1TM13. The Apostle Paul wrote at least two letters to his son in the faith, Timothy, and beginning tomorrow, we will present the first message out of our study in 2 Timothy. We hope you'll join us then as we search the scriptures.
For thousands of years, no place on earth has been more precious to God's people than the land of Israel. It was here that God first chose to bring the Messiah, and it is where He will usher in His second coming. Nothing compares to visiting the places you've only read about. For those serious students of the Bible, a trip to Israel adds depth and interest to every page of Scripture. Search the Scriptures Israel's tour is far more than a vacation. It's a spiritual journey that will impact your faith in an intense way. I'd love for you to go with me to Israel September the 28th to October the 8th. If you would like to have information, you can go online to stsisraeltour.com. The price is inclusive for everything. Airfare, hotels, three meals a day, tips, everything. 